So every summer since Michelle and I have been back, we have taken time and we have done a deep dive into a book of the Bible. And I have loved our summer book studies because it is an opportunity. It's one thing to do topical studies, to jump around and to look at uh, different things that are going on in Scripture. But it's another thing to do a book study because sometimes you miss certain topics. Sometimes you just don't think about talking about something. Sometimes there's things that just aren't pertinent at the time. But a book study forces you to go through chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and deal with absolutely everything the biblical writer decided we needed to talk about. And it's interesting because I, get, I, don't, well, I don't get a lot of emails at all from the church. Um, but the first book study we did, we're coming to the end of Colossians, and I kind of skipped over a bit of scripture because we were kind of crunched for time, and I wanted to get to a certain passage, and so I skipped over this passage, and it was one of the few nasty emails I got, because somebody was really upset. They were really excited for me to unpack this portion of Colossians, and I just skipped it. I was just like, nope, that is not time. So, um... As much as I like not getting nasty emails, that's really nice, I secretly hope inside that you're not saying a bunch of nasty things behind me and not letting me know about it. I'd rather get the email, okay? Just, just throw that out there. You know, if you got, got complaints, I like the email. At least I know where we stand. If you're telling everybody else about my issues, that's a problem. Um, but no, and I'm really excited to do Ephesians this morning. And so... We're not going to do chapter 1 this morning. We're actually going to set the foundation for the whole series. We're going to look at Paul, we're going to look at Ephesus, and we're going to look at why these are two significant people in the course of history, and the course of church history particularly. And we're going to dive in and see what can we draw from just the history of what is happening in this book, what is happening in this situation. Uh, and it's going to spear at us, launch us into the next six weeks as we do this deep dive of the book of Ephesians. Now, Ephesians is a book that I spend a lot of time with. I like a lot of what Paul has to say in this book. It is one of Paul's later books. Um, as you read through the letters of Paul, uh, whether you realize it or not, Paul's theology is growing. He's getting older. He's getting wiser. He's st really starting to step into this fatherly role for each and every one of the churches. And so Ephesians is one of these books where he has this very fatherly, big picture, meditative approach to writing and teaching. And so that is the heart of Ephesians. So as we go through it, it's not a book about, you know, he's not banging on the people, he's not coming at them full force with a hammer, but he's actually presenting theology, he's presenting um, everything he wants to teach them in a way for them to think about it and meditate on it and let it get soaked in. And so as we go through each chapter, I invite you to meditate on the words that we study, the words that Paul has written, and just really get it soaked in to the into your person. Um, so Ephesus. Ephesus was kind of a big deal. Uh, Ephesus was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It had a population of 250,000 people. Now that day, that was, that's a monstrous city. And it was the center of all religion. It was the center of all politics. It was the center of all commercial. It was right on the harbor, as you'll see on the map here. Um, I play with a new toy this morning, so hopefully it doesn't completely mess everything up. Uh, so if you can't see it, here's Ephesus right here. 
So it's right on the harbor. Um, you see, in, this is a map of Paul's second missionary journey. It's right in the heart. There's a bunch of cities all around it. Uh, when we read the book of Ephesus, what Paul doesn't do is he doesn't mention anyone by name. And that's probably because Ephesus, the book to the Ephesians, or the letter to the Ephesians was meant to circulate to all the smaller towns. It wasn't just meant to stay there. It was meant to go to lots of different churches, lots of different communities, because it was, because Ephesus was such a major part of um, the Roman province, Asia Minor. Uh, as you look at that map, are there any names in particular that stand out to you? Any cities that are like, oh, hey, that's where that was. You see Corinth up there, uh, Laodicea, which was mentioned in Revelation, Thessalonica is way up north there, Philippi is right by it. Anyways, so there's the map. I can mark it up all day if I wanted to, but I wanted to show you where Ephesus was kind of situated. It's pretty central in this part of the world, and like I said, it's a major part of Roman life, Roman Roman trade. <coughs> the other really interesting thing is because Ephesus was such a major center of the populace, such a major part of commercialism and everything, um, Ephesus is known for some of the most marquee buildings in the Roman world. There are some really fantastic uh, structures that they were able to build at that time with their limited technologies. And one of those was this theater in Ephesus. So it's built on the side of a mountain. They can see 25,000 people in that theater. That is a big theater for that day. Uh, by comparison, good old Wrigley Field in, in Chicago seats 41,000 people. In our modern technology and steel and everything that we can do, 41,000. And that is the theater in Ephesus beside it. That is... It's huge. That is a big structure, and it was something to behold. It was something to see. The stage, you kind of see in the back here, uh, the stage had, like, back rooms, and it was crazy. It was unbelievable. It was such an architectural feat uh, that historians are looking at this still today. Like, this is unbelievable what they were able uh, to pull off. And one of the most, and because Ephesus is so central, it's so important, so powerful, so influential, that Paul spent a number of years there. He spent between two and three years there ministering, establishing the church, establishing the believers there. He sent Timothy there to pastor the church um, because he was so worried about it. It's so, such an important place to have great Christian influence that he sent his son in the spirit to watch over, to teach, to guard this church to make sure it continued to be healthy, continued to be strong. And later we would read that the, actually the Apostle John would spend a large amount of time there as well, encouraging Timothy, working alongside him, planning more communities. Um, so three major players in the early church all found their way through Ephesus, encouraging, establishing the church, building it up, encouraging it. Um, so this is, this is important. This is an important place. And Probably the reason why everything that Paul says in Ephesians is so important. It's so, it is a massive contribution to the message and the theme of Scripture. Um, Paul did not take this letter lightly, which is a good segue to Paul himself. If you are new to Scripture, if you're new to the Bible, you don't know 
much about Paul. Uh, there's 27 books in the New Testament. Paul wrote between 13 and 14 of them. There's one that we're not entirely sure if Paul wrote it or not, but he definitely wrote 13 of the 27. Almost half of the New Testament was penned by Paul, or at the very least, Paul dictated it and somebody wrote it for him. So that is a major, major player in all everything that we believe comes from this man. But Paul was not always super apostle, uh, helpful, encourager of the church. We read in Acts 8, uh, his name was actually Saul in the beginning. Uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees have just killed a man by the name of Stephen, a major, the first martyr, the first man to die in, on behalf of the gospel. Saul was there, witnessed it. He said that he completely agreed with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen in the morning, but Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. Okay, I'm, I'm being serious. This is the same guy who wrote half the New Testament. Starts off going into people's houses, finding devout Christians, dragging them out to throw them into prison. Good start to your church ministry, Saul. This, this, this is awesome. Jesus, are you sure you got the right guy? Like, is this really the guy that you want to use? But because his zeal and his determination and this passion that he has is because he's a Pharisee. He's well-learned. He can teach the scripture. He's got the entire Old Testament memorized verse by verse. Like he, is, he has got it all nailed. He knows his stuff. He's just a little misguided. And then we read in Acts 9, he's on his way to Damascus to continue his rampage of the church. It says, meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. Now he's, he's evolved. He's not just throwing them in prison. He wants to kill these followers of Jesus. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked, and the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what to do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. So this is, this is Saul's conversion experience. He's on his way to Damascus. He's got permission from the high priest to throw everyone in chains he finds and haul them back to Jerusalem to be, to be prosecuted. And he meets Jesus. And Jesus asks him, why? Are you persecuting me? And he recognizes right away that this is not just ra some random experience. He knows this is from God. Because you read through the Old Testament, the messengers of God often came in bright light. They were impressive. They were terrifying. Angels often came and said, the first thing they said was, do not be afraid because of their presence, because of who they were. 
And so Saul recognizes that whoever he's talking to is from God. And then when he identifies himself as Jesus and says, why are you persecuting me? He says, oh no, I have got it all wrong because dead people don't talk. And you see how all the dots fit for Saul in a blink of an eye because all of a sudden, oh, Jesus isn't dead. Oh, everything he's, the disciples have said about his resurrection is true because now here he is speaking to me, challenging me, asking me why am I persecuting the church. The light bulb went off and he's like, ah! So he goes to Damascus and we read this later in chapter 9. He says, immediately... So he meets with a disciple there, he's healed, he's baptized, he says immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is indeed the son of God. What a switch. Boom. He goes from uttering threats, muttering, wanting to kill every last Christian that he can find, hauling them in chains to Jerusalem, to completely flipping on his head, going into the Jewish synagogues and saying, actually, Jesus, he is the son of God. He is everything the disciples have said he is. He is everything he said he was. We really need to start taking this seriously. After this, Saul would go on to go lead on, as we saw, three separate missionary journeys. He would plant churches. He would mentor important pastors all throughout church history. We know Timothy. We know Titus. Peter himself in his letter would mention that Paul, even though they may not have interacted a whole lot, recognized the fact that Paul was a great teacher and had influenced Peter in his thinking and in his letter that he wrote. Paul would become the great theologian. He'd become the great apostle. He would do amazing and wondrous things for the Lord, epitomized by the fact that about 48%, like I said, 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament Forever immortalized, as long as the Bible is printed, we have those letters from Paul written to each and every one of those churches. His words, his teachings, immortalized. And we all look at him like, yep, Paul had it figured out. That, I want to be like Paul. Probably not the early part. And near the end of our story of Paul, as we read through Acts, we get to the end of Acts reading Paul's story, and we read that Paul ended up in Rome, in prison for two years. And it is out of his imprisonment in Rome, under, under constant 24-7 guard, that he writes Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians, known as the prison letters. And it is from this prison cell, it is from this lock-key, <laughs> under guard, things not quite going his way, that he pens these words to the Ephesians that we'll look at in a couple of weeks. Ephesians 4.1, Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. I beg you to live a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. And before that, therefore, there's no name. There's no specific person that he is targeting. He is writing this to every last person that's going to read this letter in the, at the time he wrote it. And he's writing it to each and every one of us today as we write it. You have a calling 
you have been called by God is not just the pastors and it's not just the pastor's wives. Each and every one of you have a calling. Now we may read that and be like, well, it's easy for Paul to talk about a calling. You look at everything he did. He planted churches. He went on missionary journeys. You could even make an argument that Paul understood his calling because why on earth would he withstand all of the punishment he went through <coughs> Excuse me. The way that he did. Why would he go through all of that if he wasn't called? Now we flip it on the other way and we look at Paul's early ministry and the problem is, is that each and every one of us may believe that we are called. Each and every one of you may know that you have a calling on your life but all too often we run into an obstacle and we abandon ship. And I pose to you, have you ever felt like God was calling you to something? God was leading you in a direction to do something that was maybe a little crazy, maybe a little outside of the box, maybe something that had never been done before, and at the first sight of opposition, you abandoned ship. And I want you to see this, because this is really important. Because if Paul took that approach, if Paul, who was saved, went into the synagogues and started preaching Jesus, at the first sign of trouble, would have abandoned ship. Do you know how early Paul ran into trouble? We're going to rewind. Acts 9, he'd just been saved. He went off to the synagogues. He's preaching that Jesus was Lord. We're going to pick it right back where I left it. Immediately, he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is indeed the Son of God. Watch what happens next. All who heard him were amazed. Isn't it the same man who caused such devastation among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem, they asked. And didn't he come here to arrest them and take them in chains to the leading priests? Saul's preaching became more and more powerful, and the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And after a while, some of the Jews plotted to kill him. Yes. We did not jump back into the Gospels, and Jews are not talking about Jesus. Jews are now talking about Paul. They, Jews have an M.O. We don't like what you're saying. We kill you. They were watching for him day and night at the city gate so they could murder him. But Saul was told about their plot. So during the night, some of the other believers lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the city wall. I don't know how many of you got a calling from God and somebody tried to kill you over it. But I think if we were, as we read this story, as Saul, this new believer who just started following Jesus, just started preaching the message, if he abandoned ship at this point, we probably wouldn't have blamed him. They were going to kill him. But then it gets worse. The next verse. When Saul arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to meet with the believers. Okay, now he's with the church. Now he's with his new group of people. But they were all afraid of him. They did not believe he had truly become a believer. So now he shows up with his fellow believers. He shows up in the midst with all of the people who love Jesus just as much as he did. And they're like, ooh. And keep you at arm's reach. Don't know if we really want you to be part of the group. I mean, we all understand why they would say that. He just 
not too long ago he was just trying to kill them all. Get it? You're kind of little. Are you like trying to pull wool over our eyes? You trying to trick us here, Saul? Like what's going on here? But they are all like, uh, I don't know if I really believe your story. I really don't know if I want you to be a part. Could you imagine if the next verse, verse 27, read this? So Saul, Saul stopped proclaiming Jesus as Lord and lived a quiet life the rest of his days. Can you imagine if that was the next verse? Do you know what happens if that's the next verse? Acts, the book of Acts gets cut in half. The first half of Acts is all about Peter because Peter is the rock. Peter is the one that the church is going to be built on. And he goes and he does amazing things. He performs miracles. He is the teacher. He is the leader. The Catholic Church recognizes Peter as the first pope of the church. Like he is the head honcho. But halfway through Acts, Luke the author switches gears because Peter gets boring and he starts focusing on Paul. But if this is verse 27, there's no Paul to focus on. And the problem is, we have all done this. You may have done this. That you received this calling, that you knew that this is the thing that God had made you to do, formed you, gifted you, put values in you, put passions in you, gave you experience, surrounded you with all the right people. This is your calling. And all of a sudden, it goes like this. You put your name in the blank. You can actually do it in the app. There's actually a blank there. You put your name in it. Received a call from God, but the first sign of opposition went back to living a quiet, normal life. Received a call from God, and the first sign of opposition went back to living a normal, quiet life. Because normal is safe. Quiet is safe. Quiet doesn't draw attention to us. Quiet doesn't cause any problems. We just go back to being quiet. The problem is, is how many great and marvelous things have you missed out on because this is your story? How many blessings have you missed out on? How many, how many great and marvelous people have missed out on what you have to offer and the great things that you could accomplish because you allowed a little opposition. And I mean a little, I mean that. I mean a little opposition to get in the way and derail the thing that God had put in your heart to do that only you could do with the passion and the ability and the efficiency that you could bring to such a calling. And I think the problem is, is that we need a slightly different perspective. Because we perceive opposition as God saying no. We perceive a negative comment. We perceive a little hesitancy from somebody we trust. We perceive an insult. We perceive these things as God stepping in, closing the door, saying this is not the thing you were called to to do and that's simply not the case this is the reason all throughout scripture the apostles especially in the new testament the apostles would step up write to the churches and say things like this look what james says to his church dear brothers and sisters when troubles come of any kind come your way consider it an opportunity for great joy 
Yay! Someone's not letting me do what I want to do. Yay! Someone is getting in my... Yay! I have an obstacle that seems impossible to overcome. Yay! For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete needing nothing. A little later on in chapter 1, James says this, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive a crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. James, Paul, Peter, John, the author of Hebrews, they all say it at some point. They all encourage. Even Luke writes it in Acts and in his gospel that when hardship comes, consider it joy. Consider it a good thing because God is going to do amazing things, formative things through the trial. You can either see the obstacle, the negative comments, and the things that get in our way as stop what you're doing. Or you can see it as an opportunity to grow, get better, get refined, and step into your calling more. And when you take that approach and recognize that opposition is not a bad thing, it's actually a tool God uses us to refine us, then you read this passage from Paul about everything he went through. It's like, oh, that makes sense. Five times the Jewish leader gave me 39 lashes. I could stop right there. The first time, I'm out. I don't know if I would have survived the first time. He went through it five times and lived through all five. You just imagine what Paul's body looked like. Five times he was whipped with the cat of nine tails, 39 times. There would not have been an inch of his body that was not scarred. Anytime you go into like a stained glass cathedral and Paul is all like, you know, perfectly put together, that's, that's bull. Paul was not looking good because this was awful. This was a terrible thing that Paul went through. Three times I've been beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Paul actually died at one point. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. He wasn't even in a ship. He was on a piece of driftwood for a night and a day. I have traveled on many long journeys. I have faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I have faced danger from my own people, from the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced dangers in the cities, in the deserts, on the seas. I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I have worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I have been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Then besides all of this, I have the daily burden of my concern for all the churches. Anybody who had a right to sign a resignation letter because of unfit work conditions, it was Paul. But Paul did not see opposition as a time to quit. He did not see these things as an opportunity. As God saying, maybe it's time to stop. He saw it as him stepping into the calling because he knew 
that we have a spiritual enemy that is constantly at work trying to derail our calling so that we live empty, purposeless, less than fulfilling lives and wonder all of our days, what are we missing? And I want to close with this. I'm going to take this different perspective look and kind of flip it on its head. Acts 25. So we're getting to the end of Paul's missionary journey. See what I got? Okay, yeah. We get to the end of Paul's missionary journey. He is in... I can't even remember where he is at this time. He's in jail. He is before the Roman governor at the time. And he is making his case to the Roman governor to be released. He's saying, this is what I've done. This is, and you're getting Pastor Matt's version. I'm not writing it all because there's a bunch of chapters. We're not going through it all. Acts 25, he's standing before the governor. And he recognizes that even though he's making his case really well, the governor is not going to let him go because the governor wants to do the Jews a favor and release him into their hands so they can... And so Paul is a Roman citizen, and what Roman citizens had the legal right to do is take their case right to Caesar. And he's getting to the end, and he's like, I make my appeal to Caesar. And the governor's like, okay, that's your right. And he calls in the king at the time, the king over the Jews, and he hears the case. And at the end of, by the end of chapter 26, there's three or four people that have heard the case of Paul, and they all get together, and they're like, you know what? If he hadn't made his appeal to Caesar, we'd let him go. Because he has done nothing that is punishable. He's done nothing that deserves death. He's done nothing that is going to... There's, nothing that, there's no good reason for us to keep him here. We should just... Let him go. But because he's made his appeal to Caesar, we need to keep him under lock and key. After that, Paul would be taken by guard onto a ship. They'd be on the ship for months. And near the end, (coughs) they get shipwrecked. They run out of food for 14 days. They end up on an island with a group of natives. He gets bitten by a viper that's supposed to kill him. Eventually, they winter in this island, they get back on the boat, they end up in Rome, and he's thrown into, (coughs) because he's a Roman citizen, he didn't actually have to endure the prisons that everybody else had to. He actually got to rent a home, but he was under 24-hour guard. There's always a soldier watching him, keep monitoring him, so that he wouldn't flee or try to get away or do anything. And you think about it, if you had... You, sometimes you can look at that story and be like, Paul, if you hadn't made that appeal, you would have been free. You would have been able to continue to do more missionary journeys. You could have continued to plant more churches. You could have continued to do great and amazing things. Why did you ever make that appeal to Caesar? You just derailed your whole ministry. That's what we could, because we, if we take this approach that obstacles and objections are bad things, Then the boat ride and the guard and the jail time and everything just seems like all bad. It looks like something to avoid. And if you're honest with yourself, that is often how you approach objections and obstacles. And you see them as things to be avoided. But I'm going to change the perspective just a little bit. Because Paul made an appeal to Caesar, he got a completely paid-for Roman security detail. 
His own people were constantly trying to find ways to kill him, and now they couldn't because he was under Roman guard. He got his own security detail paid for by the government. Sweet. That boat that he traveled on, he didn't have to buy the ticket. The government paid for him to f- sail to Rome. The, r- the trip didn't go well, but he didn't have to pay for it. That ship, you know, I'm sure he would have rather flown first class. Actually, the, uh, the ship ride was so bad, he probably would have rode in the baggage claim of the plane. It would have been a better experience than what he got on the ship. But he's still on the ship, and he's on it for free. They have to feed him because he's a Roman citizen. They have to take care of him. They have to make sure he lives. And then he gets to Rome, gets to live two years in one of the most beautiful cities in the Roman Empire because Caesar would not allow Rome to fall. I mean, there were parts of Rome that were not so good, but he's in a good part of Rome. And he gets to live stress-free, 24-7 security detail with him, two years. Acts actually says that he was able to do ministry unhindered because of his Roman status. And at the end of it all, he got to tell the gospel to the most powerful man in the world, all because he made his appeal to Caesar. If you look at the story that way, that's a way better spin than the way that Luke tells it. Luke tells it, Paul almost died multiple times. Paul's looking at it, I get to talk to Caesar. (laughs) And Caesar's paying for it. Sweet! It's all a matter of perspective. It's all a matter of how you spin it. Yes, Paul went through some really crummy things, but each and every stripe he took, each and every beating, each and every bad word, insult, obstacle he ran into, he took them as an opportunity to be refined be better and to step into his calling more and more so that he could be the man that God had called him to be. So I put it to you again, therefore, this beaten, broken prisoner writing to the, bu- to the Ephesians, writing to the believers in Ephesus, and writing to you and me, I beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling for you And you, and you, and you, and you have been called by God. And the question is, what is your calling, and what does it mean to live a life worthy of your calling? And I invite you to join us for the next six weeks as we're going to take time to go into Ephesians, and we're going to find out. I'm going to get the worship team to come on up. I'm going to pray. Father God, I thank you. I thank you for Paul's example. I thank you for the Apostle Paul that he didn't give up. He didn't take opposition as an opportunity to run and hide and escape what was coming, but he saw it as it was an opportunity to grow, an opportunity to be refined, an opportunity to trust you more, to learn from you more, to allow your Holy Spirit to be his strength when he felt weak. And so, God, I pray that we would follow in the example. And for the next six weeks, as we dive into Ephesians and we dive into this letter written from a father's heart, that we would ask that question, God, what are you calling me to? 
and that we would read the book of Ephesians as an opportunity to step into a life worthy of that calling. God, what are you calling us to and what are the obstacles that are meant to refine us and make us into the men and women to accomplish that calling in a way that only we can. God, we are excited for what you're going to say to us as we go through Ephesians. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for the examples like Paul, that we can imitate them as they sought to imitate you, Lord Jesus. Please, as we go, Holy Spirit, we invite you in this place one more time as we sing our worship team. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen.